Good morning. Welcome to Plainfield Bible Church, where here we serve the King of Kings. Yes, it reminded me this week, my son and wife were in Phoenix. He was visiting a school out there, a big Christian school, Grand Canyon. And uh, as he was walking through the campus, some kid yelled across, that's the mullet king over there. You get the best mullet I've ever seen. That's one kind of a king, and I don't know if we would want to worship one like that, but made me laugh. He was very proud of that, by the way, being a backwoods redneck like we are. But we here serve the king of kings, and when we consider the king of kings, and we consider the deity of our, our Christ, our God, God incarnate who came, there is no better book to do that in than the Gospel of John. And I have been so blessed with what Pastor has brought to us thus far in our introduction and our first several verses into John. And, and just to see the passion and the love, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as we, as we read this very unique Gospel. So different than the others. And they're all so vital. But this one, and it, it just marks in my mind how John references himself in this Gospel. The one whom Jesus loved. The way I've always thought of that as we consider this, and I, and I want you to think of it this way in part, is this is what John knows about himself, that Jesus loved him. In spite of his sin and who he was, in spite of the fact that, contrary to what we heard in the first hour from false teachers, in spite of the fact that John isn't a God, that John isn't worthy, Jesus loved him. That's all he knows about himself. That's all he knows. And that's all you should know, is that Christ encountered you, and you heard the gospel. If you're in Christ today, this morning, and what you know now is that you're something brand new, and that's all because of him. That's what John gets us to when we read his gospel, and we see that, that this is all about Jesus. And this is all about how we view this and our response to it. So as we look at this today, I want, to, I want us to continue that theme, that idea of who Christ is and what you do when you encounter this incredible risen Christ. Before we do that, let me pray for us before we, we study this word, this beautiful text. Heavenly Father, we love you. We glorify your name. You are worthy of all of our praise. You are the king. As we jokingly talked about kings that we have down here, things that we worship down here, the world, the cosmos as it is, the things that we pursue and go after, and the feelings and the sensations and the contentment and happiness that we try to, to attain down here, they are, they are just frivolous vapors that come and go. But we know that you don't. You're eternal, and your power is magnificent. Your strength is overwhelming. And your love for us is very clear and demonstrated through your Son, who took on the form of a servant, the form of a man, who lived this perfect life, fulfilling all of these prophecies, willingly went on the Roman cross that he predicted and he chose to demonstrate that love and our, the depths of our sin. He died on that cross, and then three days later he rose again so that anyone who would believe on him, repent and believe on that name, could have life eternal. Thank you for the Gospel of John and bringing us, pointing us to that truth, that anyone who would see that, anyone who would know that, that John wrote these things, so that we would see and believe in the only name, the Son of God, your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for that and that incredible encouragement. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we go to John, I'd like you to go to John chapter 1, 10 through 13. And as we see this on the screen, 
I think it would be best if we read these verses through, just these four this morning, and then I'll tackle the others from 14, 18 through 18 next week. But John 1, verses 10 through 13, let me read that through, and then we'll break this down. Last week, before we do that, let me pick it up at verse 9 to transition. Pastor ended with the fact that Jesus is the true light, the true light which enlightens everyone. Truth comes through Christ. The reality of who we are and who he is comes through the message of the gospel that is the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. That's where we ended last week, and here we pick this up in verse 10. He was in the world, Jesus Christ, in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world didn't know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's our text this morning. So rich, so much depth there. And before we even get to the transition point, I think naturally you can see that there is a shift in between these, these four verses. The first two and the last two. And I'll just give you a kind of a, a preview of what's coming. I think that is setting the stage for our text in general through the book of John, that it is a beginning and an end, a contrast from the beginning to the end, rejection and those who would believe on him. These two things we're going to see play out as we go through the book of John. Here's what we're going to do today with these verses. Verse 10 The idea that the world didn't know him. The fact that the world was made through him, very briefly, but the world, the cosmos, those in the world, those of the flesh, those who are unredeemed, they didn't know him. His own people didn't know him, verse 11. The Jewish people, his own kindred, did not know him, didn't receive him. Verse 12, our right, if we believe on the name of Jesus Christ, to become children of God. How that happens and to keep us grounded, to keep us humble, verse 13, that this is all done by the will of God. Not by you, but by God. And there's a lot to be said for that. So let's start with the first one. Verse 10, the world did not know him. Here's our verse again. He was in the world. Jesus Christ was in the world. He came, took on human form, came to us, was here, and yet we see that, and that the fact that John has already played out in John 1, 1 through 4, that he created all things, and we're going to come back around to that in just a second, but yet the world that, that he made, that he created, and all of us who are in it, notice the world didn't know him. Know him in an intimate way. Know him as Lord and Savior. Know him as King of kings. Know him as the one who redeemed them. Know him the way Christ talks of us, knowing him at the judgment. Depart from me, I never knew you. That kind of knowing him. So as we look at this, there's really two ways to look at this particular word of world, cosmos. I think both are at play here. Without question, contextually, we know both are at play because John is speaking from the very beginning that we are dealing with the creator God when we're dealing with Jesus Christ. That we're dealing with the author of life. The star breather, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh, God incarnate, was responsible for creation. No doubt about that. We'll look at that again from Colossians here in just a moment. But then we're also going to see that this is more than that. That the cosmos is here, as he transitions, is primarily dealing with you and me. The world that we live in, the ideas, the philosophies, the the concepts, the false teaching that we've even seen in, in our one that is driven by certainly Satan, but our own evil desires. 
Let us not forget it's so easy to just push things off to the enemy, that the enemy is making us do it. But the devil doesn't make you do it. The devil's just a tempter. He's a deceiver. It's our own evil desires that cause that. And so we'll see these two things. But before we get into that second piece, I think it would be best if we go together to Colossians chapter 1. So turn to Colossians chapter 1 very briefly, just briefly, and let's get a good grounding on this. This, to me, is a, is a great passage that supplements what John has been saying in John chapter 1. And you know Scripture definitely helps us to understand Scripture. And when we see the reinforcement, all that does for us, as we see Christ continually, consistently being preached from page to page, from cover to cover, that just gives us encouragement in our faith. That just gives us a solidified view of exactly what God's Word is saying. It's It's consistent. It's fluid. And it defends itself. Speaking of Jesus Christ, verse 15, I don't hear pages anymore, so let's go to the text. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Sounds a lot like John 1. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Let me just pause. The him is Jesus Christ. Not just the Father, remember, Jesus and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus, without question, claimed divinity. This is Jesus is the him, the he, that he is speaking of here. Verse 17, he, Jesus Christ, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, fully God, fully man, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. There is no greater passage combined with John 1, 1 through 4, as Pastor mentioned in week 1 as we went into this, that gives us an understanding of who, who Christ truly is. And we cannot go any further in the passage or in our study of John if you don't first acknowledge exactly who Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, who walked the face of the earth 2,000 years ago, who hung on that tree, who people see and think about every, every Christmas and every Easter, every Lord's Day, every time we consider the name of Jesus Christ, that His name is uttered, Do you really know who he is? Do you really understand who that man is? He's not just a man. It's God incarnate. And before we go any further, that's something you have to reconcile with yourself. And so many do not. And I I put an emphasis on this because, honestly, truth be told, as pastor has just hammered home to us, if you don't understand this, you don't understand anything. The rest of this won't matter. So that's what we see here, and I just think that brings us around. Okay, so that's, that's truth. That's absolute truth. But as we go back to this idea of John 1, 10, look at what it says here, the world didn't know him. Does that mean the created world? Not necessarily, no. It doesn't mean the created world. It means us, you and I. And when we don't acknowledge this, we kind of don't acknowledge who's holding everything together. Kind of an interesting thing that I saw, and I want us to be careful with this, but you may have seen this before. In Colossians 1, 17, it makes reference to all things being held together. Now, I want to be careful with this, because maybe you've seen this before. 
And maybe you're a scientist and much smarter than me, and you may know more about this particular protein than I do. But we need to be careful that we don't just build all of our theology around something like this. But this is fascinating. Here's what it says about this protein molecule called laminin. Very fascinating. It's a protein that is part of the extracellular matrix in humans and animals. If you're lost, I am too. But that's what it says. Laminin and other ECM proteins essentially glue the cells, such as those lining the stomach and intestines, to a foundation of connective tissue. This keeps the cells in place and allows them to function properly. And fascinatingly enough, as you look at it in a microscope, this is exactly what laminin looks like, holding all things together. Now, I want to be very careful. You can build an entire sermon series around laminin. I've heard people do it, and it's a dangerous game to play. But I also think it's a fascinating thing how we see Jesus Christ in everything that we look at, if we really look. He's built into this. I don't think that's an accident. I think it's incredible. So as we think about creation as it is, now you've got to get it personal. What about you? How does this Christ encounter you? And so the, the world, the bigger view of this, the cosmos, the individual sinner, well, what does the Bible say about that? Well, look at this. The world, the cosmos, and the gospel of John. As we look at this just in John, and I'm not going to take you to every passage, don't worry, but just look at this. Look at what we Human beings, the lost sinner, the unredeemed. Unless you're saved, this was once you. Actually, it was once you, and you are now saved if you're saved. Look at what we do. Not understanding who God is, not understanding who Christ is, that he's holding all things together, that everything is made through him, by him, for him, for his glory. We see these things. John the Baptist in John one twenty nine said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We don't know that until we're saved. We don't understand that. We don't understand that the world needs a Savior. Notice in, 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 this, in John 4, that's his encounter with the Samaritan woman. And the people who heard the Samaritan woman's testimony said, well, we don't believe that now just because of what you said. We heard him. We saw him. And they say, he is the Savior of the world. We know it now. But they didn't know it before. The world is in need of eternal life. We know this so often in John 6. He talks about himself being the bread of life there. That because of him, the light of the world, John 8, he is the light of the world. That brings light to the world, as we heard in John 1, 9 last week. That it's in need of this. That the world hates the Father and the Son. We're going to see this play out in multiple verses today. That that's where our natural bent is. We hate him because he's taking things away from our kingdom. Because he's not what we want. He's not the God of our own device. He is the only God. He's not the Jesus we want him to be. He's the Jesus that he is. And by our own nature, we're enemies of God. We hate him without, without being redeemed. The world hates believers. If you love Jesus, Jesus said, if you follow me, you say what I say. If they hated me, they're going to hate you too. We'll see that play out today. And then this world that we know of, it's ruled by the enemy. We know this very clearly from John, but we can go beyond that. We know what 2 Corinthians 4, 4 tells us. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing and why are they perishing? In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded their minds the, of the unbeliever to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. Exactly what we heard earlier. He's the light. The gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Right back, Paul, Paul brings it right back to the fact that Christ is God incarnate. But people can't see it. That's what the world's all about. That's ruled by by Satan. And then finally, believers are in the world. We're here, 
And Jesus makes reference to this twice, in particular in the upper room here we see, but we're not of the world. And he prays for us in that light, knowing that we're going to be amongst enemies, knowing that we're going to be in a very hostile environment, knowing that it isn't going to be easy, in total contradiction to the health wealth gospel that we heard of in in our one, that it's going to be difficult, and yet it's good, and yet it's what we're called to. That's the world that we're dealing with here. And so when we see this, Certainly he made all things. That's, that's in context, no doubt about it. But it's, it's beyond that. The world, we who live in this world, the fallen, those who have not put their faith in Christ, this is what we are. This is how we view him. And this is what John continues to talk about as Jesus says in the upper room, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would have loved you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. I want you to notice something. He chose us out of this world. And we're going to see this hammered home multiple times today in this sermon. And it's not because of me, it's because of the word. It dictates it. This is not because of you or your own will, or because you desire it, or because it's, it's something that you've just calculated and figured out, some sort of intellectual ascent that you've come to. No, no, no. He did this. And because of this, you're like him now. The world's going to hate you too. That's the way it works out. The world doesn't know him. They don't know the Father, and they don't know you. The very next chapter, Jesus says the same thing. I've said all these things to keep you from falling away. I'm warning you of what's coming. And he's speaking to his apostles about how they will be treated and persecuted, but the same thing can apply to you. The world's going to hate you too. They will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. They don't know me. And so they don't know me, and they're not going to know you, and they're not going to love your your message, and they're not going to love me. And they certainly won't cling to the gospel. One more as we just walk through John. These are all in the upper room. John 17 in that high priestly prayer. Notice what he says to the Father on your behalf and in mine. Even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know you that you have sent me. My children that I save, these chosen, and this should be you today if you're in Christ, will be you today if you're in Christ. They know you too. Notice it says in verse 26, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. There is a unity here. We're just like Christ. The world doesn't know him, but the world knows him. The the world doesn't love him, and they're not going to love you. As we go forward in 1 John to close this out, 1 John 3, notice what John, 50 years later, maybe, Potentially 50 years later, as he sat in that upper room, here's what he, as he thinks back on this, here's what he says. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Now, I'm going to back this up once. Notice how he talks about this in verse 26. Jesus, in the high priestly prayer, talks about this love that may be in them, and I in them. All of this, in, in light of the fact that the world does not know him, the world doesn't know you because it doesn't know him, Back to verse 1 of 1 John 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know Him. Now, He gives us a brand new theme here, children of God. This is going to come up in just two verses. We're going to see this, the right to become children of God. And notice John is connecting that to knowing Christ. Him knowing you and you knowing Christ. Now, here's the transition in verse 11. If we look at verse 11, it doesn't just say the world, but it says his own people did not receive him. So back to John 1. John 1, 11. It talks about this same God-man, Jesus, 
came to his own, it says, and his own people did not receive him. Well, here we've got a very different language. It isn't just the cosmos. As a matter of fact, the world isn't mentioned here at all. We don't see cosmos or world. We don't see the general term of everyone in the world. We see his own. This is directly referencing the Jewish people, his brethren, those who knew the Word of God, who were waiting for the Messiah, that were anticipating the Messiah for generations, who were privy to the Word of God, who had the corner on it, who were taught this from their rabbis and from the Pharisees and the priests all through these generations, they should have known. And yet, his own did not receive him. Now, I want to just pause here because we could easily just say, well, this is about the Jews, and it's not about us. Let me tell you something, brother and sister. This is all about us. You take conviction and you take direction from all of it because if you think, well, that's just them rejecting him. Now, this could be a believer right, or somebody right now. wouldn't say a believer. This could be somebody right now who has their own version of, of the Messiah in their head that they've, they've manufactured. Something in their own kind of thoughts, their own conception, their own will, that they've created their own Jesus or their own truth, which is a very popular thing to do today. That could easily be you or I. If we sit here and try to create for ourselves a God of our own choosing, a Messiah of our own choosing, that fits better with our mindset that is totally twisted and totally darkened by the darkened heart that we were created with, that we have that sin nature. So be careful not to just apply this to the Jewish people because it goes beyond that. But let's just see what this means in context. This is prophesied, by the way. Isaiah 65, 1-3 says this, and this is an interplay between Jews and Gentiles. Here's what it says. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who didn't seek me. This is speaking of the Gentiles. Here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day, to a rebellious people, now we're talking about the Jewish people, who walked in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, trying to prove or impress God with what they do. Here's how the Apostle Paul brings these things back into bear in Romans 10. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who didn't seek me. I've shown myself those who didn't ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Paul will go on to talk about this in Romans 10 and 11, about the benefit to us as Gentiles that we are hearing the gospel. But in the, in the same breath, the people who should have known, the people who should have seen, the people who had the opportunity, those who were given the word of God for so long, rejected him because he wasn't what they had conceived of. There, they, he wasn't... The, 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 the Roman overthrower that they anticipated him to be. He wasn't the type of king they were looking for. It wasn't the kingdom they desired. Be careful not to fall into that same trap. But what benefit there is to us. We see the same thing in Isaiah 53, going back to prophecy. And we'll see a New Testament connection to this in just a moment. Here's what we see in this incredible prophecy from Isaiah 53 that we so often use to defend the crucifixion and the proof of the crucifixion. I did it just this week in my apologetics class, but there's more to this passage. Isaiah 53, 1 through 3 says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? This is from a Jewish perspective. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. From the Jewish perspective, he was there amongst them. He, was, he, was, he grew up literally amongst them. And you don't have to go too far but to see Christ's own ministry in and around his hometown and how they viewed him. You're just Joseph's son. I know who you are. I saw you grow up. And they'll even take it, the Pharisees would even take it to the next level. We know how you were conceived. And they'll take it to that next level. Very difficult for them to see through, but it was prophesied that this would take place. We see the same thing in Isaiah 6, and we're going to see both of these connected in John 12 in just a moment. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, this is Isaiah's incredible encounter with the Lord, Send me, he said. But then, he, then, then the Lord says to him this, Go and say to this people, the Jewish people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn to be healed. This is what's going to happen, a prediction of what will happen. So how does this all culminate to us now? Turn to John chapter 12 with me. Turn to John 12. And we'll see this play out exactly this way. And Christ will bring this home. John chapter 12. So his own received him not. The Jewish people received him not. No better illustration of this than than what we see in John chapter 12. So John chapter 12. This is coming off of Jesus talking about the Son of Man needing to be lifted up. This is entirely contrary to what they wanted to see of their Messiah. The idea that the Son of Man... First of all, calling himself Son of Man gives us this, once again, this, this vision, this view of deity because it's connecting us back to Daniel 7, where the Ancient of Days is giving authority to the Son of Man. So when he uses that term, Son of Man, it's very intentional. But as he transitions out of that, telling them, I've got to die, and your bigger problem isn't the Romans, it's your sin. The big problem isn't your happiness or not having prosperity. Your big problem is your sin. Your big problem is your separation from me. Your big problem is that you're my enemy. And so as he considers this, this connection is now made as we go and transition into verse 37. We're going to pick it up at the very end of verse 36. You'll even see a break in your Bible more than likely where it may say something about the unbelief of the people. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid it hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah, we just read both of these, might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he had heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and has hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. And as we look at this, continue in verse 41. He starts to explain this. He he starts to describe this. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Christ's glory. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogues. For they loved the glory that comes from man 
more than the glory that comes from God. I'm going to repeat that. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Can you get past this verse and think it's just about the Jewish people here? Or could this be the hang-up for most people? Could this be the problem for most of us? That glory of man, glory of self, worship ourselves, what we want, what we desire, our own God of our own choosing or creating is holding us up. Because he's not what we thought he would be. Because we don't see it the way we should see it. And when we consider this, we consider this, this idea and what Jesus is talking about, his, 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 his consideration of his own people. He doesn't say this in, in condemnation. He says this with sorrow because they should have seen. And as he looks at your heart and he sits on his throne today, looking down on, on all mankind, and I can promise you this, the Word of God is being taught today, even by such a faulty vessel as me, the Word of God as it is spoken has power and it's going to convict you, and he's going to stir in you, and he's going to draw you to himself. But you may get to this point where you say, do you love God and the glory of God more than your own glory, or is it the opposite? Which is it? Because God desires for you to be saved. We see this two other times with Jesus as he looks down on Jerusalem. We see this again in Luke 19. We won't look at the Luke 19 passage, but look at his heart for his people. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Very Jewish, but that's the heart of the Lord. It's the heart of the Lord for his people, for those who, he, who should have known him, but it's, it's his heart for you too that you would hear the gospel and you would repent and believe, as we'll see coming back around in our last two verses, that you would see that your own sin is keeping you from him and that things have to change. There has to be something that happens, and that's God encountering you, coming to you, and he's doing that today if you're sitting here in this audience, if you're sitting here in this congregation. He's calling to you. He's challenging you. His word of, the Word of God is penetrating your soul and mine, even as I teach. So as we transition now into the last two verses, I want you to notice something I mentioned earlier. John 1, 10 through 11, contrasted with John 1, 12 through 13, this is previewing the rest of the book. And you'll notice that up to this point, it's kind of been rough. Those first two verses aren't very pleasant, are they? I haven't said a whole lot of things that are encouraging to you just yet. It's kind of challenging. But this is what the Lord does. He brings us to the end of ourselves. He helps us to understand who we are. God's Word is a mirror for us to see what we're lacking, who we truly are. And we are not little gods. We are sinners that are in desperate need of grace. Chapters 1 through 12 will chronicle and stress the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. That's what we'll see. Continual rejection. We saw that culminated where I just ended with us in John 12. That he looked back on his own people and they, were, they saw it, and they, they con- considered his miracles. Even Nicodemus, someone who said, we know you come from God, but they struggled because of their God in their own mind that they have created. And then we'll see a beautiful transition, which we're going to see here in the next two verses, that the focus is now on the believing remnant, those who receive him as Messiah, those who believe on his name. And this is the good news. This is a great thing that we're going to see. So as we go on to verse 12, let's do that. John 1, 12. Bring it up on the screen for you. I bring it up on both the ESV and the NASB so that you can see the difference. 
They are both good, and it gives us a, a broader understanding of this, but let me read them both. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right, he gave the right to become children of God. The NASB says it this way, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believed in his name. Slightly different structure of how those sentences are. Even to those who believed on his name, even to those, and we see in the first one, to all who did, as many as did. Very similar language, but gives you a little broader understanding of this. Now before we go any further with this, I want to make sure we understand what this isn't and what this is. Bodhi Bauckham has a very famous quote where he says this, and I counseled with pastor about this, should I mention this, should I not? He says, oh, you mentioned the gospel. Make sure it's clear with people. Nowhere, Bodhi says, in the New Testament will you find that salvation is about accepting Jesus. Nowhere are you called to accept him. Nowhere in the New Testament will you find that salvation is about asking Jesus into your heart. We use that phrase, by the way. Before you beat yourself up, I've used it too. Dangerously, we've got to be careful about our words. We've got to be careful about our words. You're not going to find that phrase in the Bible. Certainly you'll get a new heart, and if that's what you mean, certainly, that's true. That we, we worship the Lord with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, absolutely that's true. But that phrase isn't there. Nowhere in the New Testament are we told to ask Jesus into our heart. Nowhere, nowhere, nowhere. It's not there. What you are told again and again is to repent and believe. What you are told again and again is to repent and believe. This isn't a feeling. It's not a sensation. It's not a high. Okay? It's not, and let me just pause on this. I don't want to offend. Well, I do want to offend with the gospel, but I don't want to offend. Eh, there's a movement going on right now in the news. Asbury College, Kentucky, not too far from here. And listen, before I say anything more, I'm all about people worshiping for 10 hours plus. I'm all about it, if that's what it's about. But you know what this has morphed into for some? I've got to drive to Asbury to get saved. I've got to go to that college and get in there and find a way to get a sensation, the high, the feeling, the euphoria of it all. It's an event. It's a building. It's a college. It's going on there, but it's not going on there. Let me tell you something. That's not how it works. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. That's not how it works. It didn't work that way with the, the Ethiopian eunuch. He was reading Isaiah 53, and God brought a believer, Philip, to him to explain it to him, and he got saved, and he was rejoicing after that. Not for the feeling. When, when Cornelius and Peter's encounter happened, Cornelius didn't know anything. What happened? The gospel came to him. He heard the gospel from Peter, from his very words, and he got saved. Not just him, others that heard it. They didn't travel somewhere to some big auditorium or to some sort of revival. That's not in the Bible. This can happen in the privacy of your hotel room when you grab a Gideon Bible, open it up, hear the gospel, and you're broken. Because the God incarnate encountered you, and he, the Father drew you to himself. The gospel broke you, and you repented and believed. That's what we find. That's what's there. So when we read a passage like this, you can so easily take the word receive and make it seem like asking Jesus into your heart. 
Let me tell you what it is. Receive and believe are the same thing. Synonymous. And we're going to see that coming through Scripture. I took a little extra time on that, but I thought it was important. We don't want to take a passage like that and make it into something that we're doing by our own inertia, by our own will, by our own momentum, that we're somehow doing this ourselves, that we're coming after God because we finally got it figured out and we're going to chase after Him. That's not how it works. And then ask Him, the sovereign God of the universe, by the way, the Almighty God, we're going to let Him in. Just think about how stupid that sounds. You know why it sounds stupid? Because it is. That's why. Okay, enough of that. Let's get on to this. John 3, we know this passage. I want to just look at this for a moment. I know you know it. You could, re- you could recite this, I hope. I assigned John three seventeen through 19 to my seniors. And they said, why didn't you give us 16? I said, because you know it. I want you to memorize something you don't know. Everybody knows John three sixteen, but I think it's important to look at it all in context. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I want you to notice what I'm, I'm bolding here and putting in a different color. Notice the, the trifecta here. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What did the Philippian jailer ask Paul and Silas? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What's packed into that? Repentance. Because that's what Jesus told them at the Great Commission. You teach them repentance. What does Paul say to Agrippa in front of him? I taught repentance, that their, their deeds should line up with repentance. I taught them believe on Christ, but what does that mean? Surrender, that you're no longer the same. When Christ encounters you, the, the, the identifying factor is you're different, that there's something different about you. Here's what MacArthur says. I know this is long, but it's good. Here's what he says. What does it mean to receive him? It means believe. They're parallels. As many as received him, to those who believe in his name. To believe in his name is to receive him. To receive him is to believe in his name. To believe in his name is to believe in what his name means. And it means all that he is. I love that. There will be some who believe. The word but is a small but powerful fulcrum that makes a dramatic shift from the previous unbelief. But as many as received him. Let me just pause in the middle of his quote. We had all that bad news, all that rough. The world didn't receive him. The world didn't know him. His own people didn't know him. But, but, here's the the good news. But as many as received him or believed in him, he gave the privilege, we're going to see it, the right to become children of God. And that's the true nature of believers. What are we? Are we just religious people? Are we just people who follow creeds? Are we just people who go through religious ceremonies? Are we just people who have certain moral code that we live up to? No. The true nature of a believer is we are children of God. And you don't find that really clearly indicated in the Old Testament because the people in the Old Testament would only call God the Father in a creative sense, not in an intimate, knowing Him, like I mentioned before, personal sense. We cry, Abba, Father. We speak to, our, to God as our personal Father because we are His everlasting children. Whew, good stuff. Good stuff. So as we go forward in this, Becoming children of God. Look at this, what John says in 1 John. We've been here before, but look at the fuller text. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are given to us. This is going to be hammered home this morning. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know Him. Notice the connections to all of this, the fluidity of it. 
Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, Maranatha, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We walk differently. We act differently. We're different because we're now part of the family. And what does that mean? Well, Paul puts it this way, Romans 8, adoption as children and heirs. I take this one, and it's so so incredible to consider this. And anyone who is who's ever been involved in adoption or supported adoption, it falls short comparing it to the adoption that we've experienced as believers. It does. But there's some similarities to this. It, it makes it very precious. We all understand the concept of it. But here's what Paul says. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear or sin, if we want to add to that, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, MacArthur mentioned that earlier. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, providing we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. We can go through struggle and difficulty for the name of Christ. Back to John 15. That's going to be rough. It's going to be difficult. That's the way it goes sometimes. It's going to be hard to walk that road with Jesus but we're co-heirs. We are children of God. We've been adopted into the family, and that's all by his design and his will. Go to 1 John 5. What does that look like in a practical way? 1 John 5. And I thought about taking this out and saying, ah, I could just gloss over this. I don't want to do that. What does that look like to you as a child of God? If that's you, and once again, there's no guarantee that that's you. I, I don't know if you know Jesus and he knows you. I don't know if you're redeemed, but 1 John 5 helps us to understand a little something about ourselves. Be careful, believer, that we don't use this to start analyzing the person next to you. You should analyze yourself. This is kind of that encounter Christ had with Peter. And when Peter said, well, what about him? Talking to John. He said, you don't worry about him. You worry about you. This is for you to know. This is for you to see, are you truly in Christ? Are you truly a child of God? Let me just briefly go through this. I love this passage. I point to this to my students all the time when they ask me, I don't know if I'm really saved. I said, well, look at this passage. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Let's start there. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and he's the Messiah? Check. Do you believe that? Is that in your DNA? Is that who you are now? Because you've got a new heart, your new DNA. Is that who you are? Do you believe that? Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Do you love Jesus? Do you love the Father? They're one. Do you love them both? Greatest and first commandment. Is that number one? Okay, number two, verse, that's number three, but number three is in verse two. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. And there we have a couple of them. Do you love other believers, which we're going to see in the next verse too, and do you love his commandments? Do you do them? Do you obey them? Jesus spends a lot of time in the upper room challenging his apostles. He does it four times in about seven verses. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. You'll you'll obey my commands. You'll do what I say. You hunger and thirst for righteousness, which is found in God's word, and you desire to know it and to do it. Not to be hearers of the word only, but doers of the word. Is that you? There's number three and four. Verse three, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and they're not burdensome. You love them. We consider Romans 7 often, where Paul is struggling with his sin. Right? And the, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I end up doing, right? Oh, the wretched man that I am. But you ever think about that language that he uses in there? The things I want to do, 
See, in Christ, he is now a new creation. He's a new animal, and he wants to please the Lord. He wants what God wants. He hates what God hates. And that's why the struggle's real for him, because his flesh is fighting against that. But who he really is, the one redeemed, the child of God, the co-heir, the one that has been taken from the mire and the pit, and when they were going down that path that everybody was going down, Ephesians 2, he pulled them out of the, the depths. He pulled them out of the mire, literally pulled us out of the fire. And now you're something else, and the struggle's real because you want to please him and you want to do what he says. You want to do what the Word says, and that's why it's not burdensome. As a matter of fact, it's life to you. It's direction to you. When you look at his Word, it isn't, oh, here we go again. It is, give me more. It's not a burden. I need to do this better. It's convicting. Sometimes the weight is strong because you know you're not doing it right. But it's reviving because you go to the Word of God and it tells you this is the way to go. This is the way to do it. You want to please me? You want to do my will? Romans 12, 1 through 2. You want to do that? Renew your mind? Know my will? How do you do it? You get into the Word of God. This goes right back to it every time. It's not a burden. It's, a, it's, it's our food. It's what we need. It sustains us spiritually. Verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God, born of God, overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Endurance, an overcomer, oh, more than conquerors, same concept. Here's the last mark. Do you still believe? Through the trial, through the difficulty, we sang about that in the first song, the ups and the downs. Do you still believe after 10 years, 20 years, 15 years? People ask me all the time, how many Christians are in your, in your senior class? None. All? I I don't know. I'll tell you in about 20 years. If they're still following Christ, if they can still proclaim that they believe Jesus is the Christ, verse 1. If they still do that, the endurance of the believer, that's sustained through Christ because he did it and he holds them and he never lets them go. That's John 6. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Notice the book ends. Do you believe he's the Son of God here? And do you believe he's the Son of God here? I watch my parents live and die. And the consistency of their walk with Christ, all they did was grow in Christ. And they proclaimed his name from the beginning, from the first time I could understand it, till the time they took their last breath. That's how every believer is. Endurance. Those are the marks of the believer. That's showing that you're a a child of God. That's what that does. And notice what John does, just a few verses. If you're still in 1 John, go to verse 13. I'll bring this up on the screen. So why does he write all this? For your neighbor, so you can see if they're a Christian? No, it's not for that. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You want to know? Put your faith in Christ. Believe on these things. These are the marks. These aren't earning it, folks. This isn't step one, two, three, four, five, and I'm saved. No, there's one step, and Jesus does it. Okay, He does that. Your response, though, gives you confidence. As you look in this and you look at your life, and this isn't a sinless life, this is a life of struggle, repentance, and right back on track. That's what this is. That gives you confidence that you know Christ. That's what that is. That's what it is. So that's for you and that's for me. That's what they look like. And then let's, let's close this out. To be born of God is the will of God. Hmm. That's going to take it right out of our hands, and we're going to have to be real careful when we start preaching the gospel. And uh, we're going to have to be real careful when we do that and think that it's it's about some sort of uh, verbal commitment or some sort of outward showing. Here's what John says in John 1.13. 
Speaking of this, speaking about being children of God now, that he's, be, he's created this in us, he's made this, us into this, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's very clear, and it's, and it's very striking. Here's what Paul says. I want you to remind yourself of this. We know this passage, but so often we don't look at it in context. So what then? Are we Jews any better off because they knew the word, they had the word, that they were Jewish, they were chosen? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles alike, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. Everybody reads Romans 3.10, but look at this. No one understands and no one seeks for God. No one goes to Asbury College and finds Jesus there because he's not here. No one seeks out after God because they heard a great message in church that was finally lining it all up intellectually, and I finally got all the proof, so now I'm going to go seek God, and then I'll, find, I'll chase after him, and I'll let him in. That's not what's going to happen. We don't seek him like that. It says no one does that. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's Isaiah 65. That's a prophecy, and it's true. Here's what MacArthur says about this, and this is scary, but we see this. I watched an evangelist the other day pleading with people to make a decision for Christ. With music playing and constant pleading, there's this emotional response. It's something something a sinner cannot do. The sinner cannot make a decision for Christ. Christ has to make the decision for the sinner. This is the will of God, not the will of man. It would be convenient if I could do this at my time and at my leisure. It'd be convenient. It's kind of like what we like to do as Americans, right? It's fast food Christianity. It's when it's, when it's perfect for me. It's kind of like people who say, well, I'm going to have kids when I can afford it. Well, it means you're probably never going to have kids. I'm going to put my faith in Jesus when I'm ready. Okay. Well, if Jesus is calling you today, today's the acceptable day, and today is the day of salvation. See, if, if, if you hear, hear him and you consider what he's saying to you through his word today, not through mine, but through his word today, and you think, well, that, that'll keep. Let me get this stuff sorted out. I haven't quite calculated it all yet. I need a little more proof. You may not have any more time. That, that may not be there for you. It might not be in the cards for you. What's, what's in the cards is this moment, the moment that Christ is encountering you today, right here, right now. Notice what Jesus says about this salvation and how it works. And these are reminders for us. But John 6, I'll read 36 through 37 and I'll skip to 44. I said to you that you have seen me and yet you don't believe. This connects to the old, what we saw in the first two verses. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is about God, not you. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will be taught by God Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. This is about him doing this, not you doing this. It's about you responding in faith and belief and repentance, but even that is something that is inspired and shook up inside of you by him. But this is about you right here, right now, in this moment, understanding that this is not I am, it's he is. He's the I am, and he's the one that's encountering you today. Look at what we see, this this idea we see from Earlier, I mentioned Nicodemus. Jesus said to him in that encounter, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Peter brings this back around to the idea of being born from above. 
if we look at the true Greek on this, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, the truth of the gospel, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, born from above, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And that comes from above. When Peter gave his great confession to Christ, well, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He didn't end there and say, great job, Peter, you got that figured out. No, he said, you didn't get that on your own. That came from the Father above. That was granted to you. And sinner, he may be granting that to you today. What's your, what's your response going to be? This is not born out of your will. It's not in your timing. It is in God's. One more, and then I'm going to bring this home. Do not be deceived, my brothers, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and perfect gift comes from above. Now, I've used this verse, as many of you have. All the good things that come from above are from God. That's true. The context of this is salvation. It's the grace that comes down that encounters you where you sit as a sinner, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures or creation. When we look at this, this was of his own will. The will of the Lord is what accomplished the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. The will of the Lord is what accomplished all the prophecy fulfillments. The will of the Lord is what gets this incredible book in your lap right now. It's the will of the Lord that accomplishes salvation, and it's the will of the Lord that grace comes from. This is what he wants, this is what he did. Now, what's the consequence of this? Going back to 1 John 5, 1. Believing and being born from above, believing is the consequence, not the cause of the new birth. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. The reason you believe is because you've been born from above. The reason you believe is because the, the, the God of the universe encountered you in your sin and he changed you. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Great quote I found from this on John Stott. He said this, the combination of present tense believers and perfect tense has been born is important. It shows clearly that believing is the consequence, not the cause of the new birth. Our present continuing activity of believing is the result and therefore the evidence of our past experience of a new birth by which we became and remain God's children. It's the evidence of. It's not earning it. You can't possibly do that. This is because Christ did something to you. Now let's make a connection to these two things. Connecting, becoming an heir, and the will of God. Look at how Peter puts this. Blessed be the God, and this is 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Boy, that sounds a lot like John. It's almost as if they were listening to the same guy for three years. It's almost as if they were in that same room the night before the crucifixion. It's almost as if they have the same Holy Spirit inspiring them to write the same words. Because he connects God doing this to you by his own will, causing you to be born again, and then inheriting this incredible, amazing, and this concept of being adopted as sons and daughters that is undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven. Can't lose it. It's almost as if they were in the same room. And they were. So will of God becoming an heir as we go forward in this, going back. So what does this look like? Let's bring this home. A believer is born by the will of God, so what do we do? 
we practice righteousness. 1 John 2, 28 and 29. So as we consider all of this, package this together, what the world, what we once were, what the world thinks, what the enemy continually thinks, what he now has done for us, now what? What does that look like? Here's the challenge to the believer because we can sit back and do nothing. We can sit back and just sit in the graces of of God and, and resist the conviction of the Holy Spirit to now live differently. But here's what we're called to do now. Look at the connection between all of these. Verse 28, now, little children, talking to you, not the kid next to you, abide in me so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. He's talking to believers. Why would you ever be shrinking back at his coming? Because you haven't been living for him. You're saved, but as through fire, as Peter would put in 1 Corinthians 3, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. One more time, he's challenging you to practice it. Live it out. To, To make your faith real that it is evident to the people around you, but for you and Jesus. See, it really just comes down to this. It comes down to this, both for you in here who are unredeemed, those who have not put their faith in Christ, and for you who have. It's just you and Jesus, one-on-one with the chosen one. And you've got to consider what that means for you. For the believer, it's this, that we practice righteousness. We put it on, and we take off the sin, and we put on the righteousness, and we continue to study his word. We're convicted by it, and we continue to fight that good fight, knowing that we're going to do that, and our labor is not in vain. But for that non-believer that's in here, for you, there are a few of you, potentially, who are still playing a game. And you may very well be sitting here, and everybody around you thinks you're in Christ because you know exactly what to say and exactly what to do, but you haven't really understood it. And you haven't really processed it. And, and you still think it's somehow about you saying some magic words at a revival somewhere. And you still think that. And I'm going to say that maybe that's not the case and today's your day. Isaiah says and warns, seek the Lord while he may be found. Folks, that means he can't always be found. It's a scary thing to say, right? Can't always be. Call upon him while he's near. He's not going to always be near. You don't have all the time in the world. Let the wicked forsake his way, that's repentance, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, that's, that's mindset and philosophy of the world. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. What does Paul say connecting these dots? He's going to quote Isaiah 49 and a little 53 in Isaiah or 2 Corinthians 6, working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Don't receive it in vain. This morning, right now. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Sinner, I don't know what's going on in your mind. I don't know what's going on in your heart. I don't know where you sit. Whether you're a child of God and you have inherited all these things, and you've got to start living for it, living by it, living like it, so that you don't shrink at his coming. And then maybe you're one who is sitting here and has been playing a game, or this is the first time you've ever heard it. Right now, right here, is a new day. Right now is a new moment. And he is near, and he is able to be called upon because he wants you to be saved. Remember what John says, I write these things so that you know who he is, and by knowing who Jesus is in the only name that can save, so that you can have eternal life. That's why John wrote the gospel, and that's why I'm standing up here in front of you, so that you can be saved so that you can hear the gospel and so be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for the very clear word that you gave us today. And we thank you that your will is to save us, that you didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world through your Son. 
that those very clear messages for us take the onus off of us other than the fact that we must repent and believe, but the salvation belongs to you. I pray that this doesn't pass people by, but today they, they, they think about this. And as you convict them and you draw them to yourself, that they believe and they repent and their life changes forever. And for those of us who have known you a long time and been walking with you, I pray that today is the day where we say, all right, we're going to do better. Today's the day where we're going to practice righteousness. Today's the day that 1 John 5 is going to be very evident to the people around us that we can be an example, that that endurance is real, that that love is real, that following your commandments is real, that your commandments aren't burdensome, and that we love the Father, we love you, we love, we love the, the fact that we are saved. We love it all, and it's evident to the people around us. I pray that that be true of all of us today. And as we go out into the world and we, we preach the gospel, I pray that your words come out of us, not our own. That we, we, we become less and you become more. We thank you for the opportunity to do all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.